My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin. A spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Only on Global Voice Broadcasting. When I dare to be powerful, to use my strength in the service of my mission, then it becomes less and less important whether I am afraid. Activist Audrey Lord. I love that quote so much. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and we have a very powerful guest joining us today who is using her voice and talents in beautifully impactful ways. Jessica Holter, a.k.a. Ghetto Girl Blue, is a gifted writer visual artist, performer, public speaker, and more, best known for creating the Punami Poets in 1995. It features adult theater and sex education with exotic flair and social consciousness. Jessica's TV experiences, including appearances on HBO, BET, and Playboy TV, set the tone and pace for a live performance and publishing career that spans 20 years. She uses passion to combat pain, sexual respect to fight sexual abuse, and honesty and the promotion of monogamy to rip the stigma from AIDS. Such beautiful work you do, Jessica. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, August. I'm so excited. So before we talk about your amazing theatrical activism and work, I would love to hear a bit more about your own personal journey. What did you learn about sexuality and your body when you were growing up? Oh, when I was growing up, I learned very little. <laughs> I was um, I was raised by a really old lady uh, in foster care, and I guess uh, her first sex talk with me was a very limited one. It was a uh, oh, after you have sex for the first time, you'll be douching for the rest of your life. <laughs> that was pretty much it. <laughs> very enticing. <laughs> It was very bad. It was very Aww. bad. I was, I was, um, definitely went into my teen years uh, unprepared. Yeah, it's so interesting how how little we tend to know. You know, I think we've made some progress in this area, but there's so much more work to do. And it's amazing for you to have gone from that to what you do now. Could you tell us a bit about the inspiration? Did you know early on that you wanted to? you know, kind of pair activism and theater? Um, no, I uh, I knew early on that I wanted to be a writer. That That's pretty much all I knew. Um, when I was very young, I wanted to be a writer. But um, I, uh, I think, um, I think when I started the, the Punani project, I just, it was just a natural thing. It was a response to to um, to AIDS in in the black community. I, I created the project as a response to AIDS in the black community, and I thought, you know, if I could get this book into the hands of, of people in my community, I, I was addressing sexuality in a similar way that it, um, to the way that it was being addressed in hip hop music of the time. Only, only with a, a, a safer sex twist on it. Mm. 
That is such a mm-hmm. powerful and important message. Message. I know that um, when Easy E died of AIDS complication in '95, that really affected you. And I'm curious, kind of how the project came into fruition. Was it was there this aha moment, or was it kind of an accumulative um, growth? Um, well, I was a journalist at the time covering hip-hop music so it was absolutely an aha moment it was like oh my god black people are about to die from AIDS (laughs) like we have to do something we have to do you know and so I thought you know if I if I speak in a language that is familiar to the people that I want to talk to because um I don't know you sound like you might be a little younger than me but at the time there really wasn't any there was no addressing AIDS for women, let alone African-American women at the time. It just was not being discussed. But I knew that there were lots of men in jail and lots of men having sex in jail and lots of people who were going to be exposed to it. Um, just lots of women who were going to be exposed to HIV because of that. So was your first theatrical project then uh, stories about HIV and AIDS? I know you work in sex ed. Is it? Yeah, it was the book, the the first book, which is Punani the Hip Hop Song, um, does have kind of anecdotal poetry um, and short stories in it with kind of a a hip hop flair. It's real simple writing and um, kind of nude pictures and stuff, but it also has uh, pages that are dedicated um, safer sex and um, sexual health pages uh, in it that that focus on that. So it's, it's almost like a, it's a coffee table book, but it's almost like a community service project, really, the first book that we did. And then they, um, I, after I got the book, I, I didn't know how to sell it. I was like, okay, now that I have the book, uh, how do I sell it? So I started doing these um, performances of pieces that were in the book. So kind of like the pieces come to life. So the in the book, it would be like a poem, and then there'd be like a, a naked or half-naked woman next to it. So I wanted to recreate that image on the stage. Beautiful. Were you already (laughs) an actress? Because I've the clips I've seen, you're really phenomenal and powerful on stage. Is that a background that you had? Oh, thank you. You're so sweet. (laughs) Um, No, my background is in um, journalism. I worked as a journalist, and I was um, trained in public speaking, though, through Toastmasters and um, through the church, the, the Baptist church. I love it. That's that's amazing. So what was it like being on stage in that capacity, especially doing something so sensual and erotic? Well, I was really nervous. I mean, when we did the, the shoot for HBO, I was really nervous. I was married. I had a son. And I was just like, oh, my God, how is everybody going to receive this? This is crazy. I went into it with a lot of angst. But I'm really glad that, it, that I did um, choose to do it. And it's funny because, you know, 17, 18 years ago, whenever that was, like, you know, black people just did not speak openly about sex or sexuality. You might see black women half naked in a rap video, but you didn't have intelligent conversations with 
with black women about sex or sexuality in public mm. at that time. So it was definitely cutting edge and controversial. Like the, the very first show we did after doing it, we got uh, protested by the Black Student Union at the University of Colorado. Like they were mortified and people were just Wow. beside themselves like how could you not only not only are you exposing black sexuality in a, in a you know in public like this but you're also defiling poetry with sex <laughs> how dare you yeah you know is when it you say really it like crazy. it right i mean it sounds so like comical that somebody would be like how could you when like Shakespeare did that. I mean, everybody in classic I literature. Know. The Bible <laughs> talks about things. Yeah. Like, really? <laughs> wow. Wow. But yeah. also, that's more yeah. evidence that your work is so needed, right? Because there's this shame yes. and all this. So, but it's still hard. Well, and, to... that, and that was my and that was my retort. It actually gave me the 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 fodder that I needed to to press on because I was like, well, this is the problem right here. Mm. You're having sex. You're fucking, but you're not talking about it. This is the problem. This is why you have HIV right now, because you, you're afraid to talk to them about what they like. I mean, they might be gay. They might want their ass played with. They might want, you know, whatever it is they want or wherever it is they've been or whoever they've been with. They're not going to be open to talk to you about it because you're a freaking prude. Like you're acting like you're speaking like you're a prude, but your actions don't show that. So to me, the numbers just spoke for themselves. And we were already in 1995, when um, Easy E announced that he had AIDS, black heterosexual women were already 23% of the newly diagnosed HIV AIDS cases in that year. Wow. And now we're like closer to 70%. Like, mm. there is a lot of fucking going on and not enough conversation about it. That's really devastating. Wow. My goodness, those numbers are really mm -hmm. powerful. So I'm sure you hear a lot of positive feedback too and, and a lot of thank yous and kind of me too moments from people who feel comfortable maybe talking about it. I know when I talk about sexuality, a lot of people in my audience deal with a lot of sexual shame, so they're not as vocal. But have you heard from a lot of people over the years who have been grateful for this kind of education that's also so entertaining? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think mo most of the most of the praise comes from couples who you know, I've been around for a long time now, so we get a lot of um, repeat clients. We get a lot of older clients, clients that maybe were um, more um, standoffish before. You know, once you get in your 40s, uh, your perspective on a lot of things, especially um, with regards to sex and relationship, changes um, as you get older. So a lot of our clients who are older are really appreciative because they're they look at it as a chance. I'm, I'm talking about the live shows. They look at it as a chance to just add spark to their relationship. I, mm -hmm. I'd say about 70% of our clients um, are that group, the group of people who are married or in long-term relationships and just looking to add a little boost to their love lives. And mm -hmm. they are definitely um, very appreciative. And I'd say the second group would be women who are overcoming some type of sexual abuse. I'm pretty open about the fact that I was raped and molested. And so a lot of women who read my work um, really uh, feel grateful 
for me sharing those stories. And um, I talk a lot about learning how to love sex and love yourself again after going through uh, sexual abuse. I think a lot of us, you know, we, we um, but yeah, like, like we, we started talking at the beginning of the conversation about what we know about. So I knew nothing about sex. I think a lot of people go into sex, like learning as they go along, yeah. as opposed to like, nobody really takes time to talk to you about, you know, what you feel, how you feel, where you're coming from, have you been abused? Like even, even when you're going into your first serious sexual relationship, like who really talks to you about anything? Yeah. You know? So, I mean, it's really sad. Like, it's so such a simple thing to have conversations. You talk about everything else. You could talk about politics. And it's funny at our show, like at the Head Doctor show, um, which is a great, uh, a great opener. Like, for anybody who's never been to a Ponani show who would like to come to one, if you see the Head Doctor coming to your town, that is the one to start with. It, it actually starts with a Q&A where you can write sex and relationship questions on these index cards. And then we engage the audience for about half an hour with that. And it really opens up the room, just the whole energy of the room just shifts um, to a real positive and open, um, uh, reaffirming kind of space. And at the end of the Q&A se- session, but before the show, you know, I, I talked to them about that. Like, you know, it's a trip that everyone in this room can share openly these sexual conversations that we're having. You're sharing feelings and emotions and secrets in this room full of strangers, but you haven't even shared these things with the person you're sharing your life with. Mm. Yeah. You know, and everybody's like, oh. Mm, yeah, <laughs> yeah, really. Totally. I can imagine that must be so powerful. I do wish that there were more opportunities for that from, you know, from early on. What are some of the common questions or themes that you hear when you open it up for questions? <laughs> oh, this is fun. Um, number one question would probably be, um, how do I get my partner to do X, Y, or Z? So it's like, it's usually like, how do I get my partner to agree to do a threesome? Or how do I get my partner to do some type of anal play? Those are number two. Mm, interesting. One and two, I think. Mm-hmm. And again, it's about um, that, that lack of communication, right? It's interesting that that's such a big thing. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. And how do you respond to something like that? Oh, yeah, we have, you know, we we have pretty much the standard answers you have in the sex industry for those um, communication, pretty much. Um, I'm, you know, and and we have a group of people that that I perform with and different people take different positions, of course. I'm kind of a, you know, comedian in a way. <laughs> so I, awesome. I crack a lot of jokes. <laughs> That's important. And I'm not really into, well, I'm not really into ass play. And I, I, I try to be real honest um, with people so that they can know that they can be honest too. Yeah. So I don't do uniform answers. You know, I, I, um, I keep everything um, 
where it should be as far as making sure I'm not giving misinformation. But I definitely let them know where I'm coming from on things because I want them to feel like they can come from, you know, their place of honesty, too, when they're having these conversations with their partner. And I am not into ass play. Like, it doesn't really do anything for me. Um, So the conversation for that, you know, of course, starts with, is this something you're into or you think you might be into? Let's try this. Well, how about just a fingertip? How's this feel, you know? Yeah, I love that you said that, too, because... It's super important to also know that not everybody's into it, and that's okay too. You know that I think mm-hmm. it's that's okay too. Yeah, yeah. If that's if, especially if mm-hmm. you've only a lot of people, their only sex education comes from like mainstream porn, and if they're watching a lot of porn with anal in it, they might just both be assuming that their partner wants it, and maybe neither of them do. Like, you know, I've had questions about that where, um, you know, a woman recently asked me why her all of the guys she'd been dating they just assumed she liked anal play you know and one of the guys that she ended up in a relationship with it turns out he thought she wanted it she thought he wanted it <laughs> they didn't want it so it's, right yeah it's, it's pretty amazing <laughs> right right and isn't it interesting how we start having sex before we start talking about <laughs> yes yes that's actually how a lot of my work started i remember that moment of realizing that i had never talked about sex and, and yet I'd had it like it, it's such such a weird, contradictory thing. And it makes so many of the problems that we have as a society, like in neon lights, like no wonder. Right. 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 And it's like it's like they used to have this saying and I haven't heard it in a long time. Um, youth is wasted on the young. I, I now really understand what that means. Like when you have the. um when you have the experiences that you need to get through this thing we call life, you know, by the time you can develop enough experiences, you're so old. <laughs> yeah. it's, you're less likely to actually practice them. And then, then when you're young, like you're, you, I think a lot of us don't even know the questions to ask because yeah. there's no experience there. Um, that's why we have to like these conversations are really important this is great you're doing your show like we have to have open forums we have to talk about things that are natural sex is natural yeah we really do and i love i think the arts are such a beautiful place to encourage and educate and inspire because there's something about having this one class which is what a lot of people have they have one trimester or one health class or just one the talk you know with their parents and it's always like this oh right one talk yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) like they're done yeah i got it all figured out now they send you to the library that's what my mama did. She sent us to the library. Like they were having a sex ed class for teenagers and uh-huh. she sent us to the library because she didn't want to talk about it. Oh, no. <laughs> so then you're at the library looking for books about what they're talking about in the classroom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because it's so natural to have curiosity, too. You know, I think even really tiny little kids typically have questions about their bodies and about sex. And there's this tendency to really shun that and and be embarrassed that they're asking when it's so natural. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or or don't do that. Don't touch yourself like that's bad. You know, from the very from the time kids are very little, we start telling them right away. Oh, don't do that. Yes. I have a, I have one girlfriend. She has one of the healthiest libidos I've ever seen in my life. 
but I remember her telling me that when she was a kid, um, her mom would say, go to your room and do that. She wouldn't tell her not to touch wow. herself. Yeah. She would tell her to go to the room and do that. That is so refreshing. You know, it's very say, interesting, right? It is interesting because it's so much the idea of, you know, it's not it's not that that's a bad it, it can be a private thing, but that doesn't make it a bad thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I think right. that was pr- that's pretty awesome, especially because I think especially for that's girls, really. you know, girls, especially. Yes. I remember yes. learning that, you know, masturbation was bad no matter what. Like you'll go to hell, but guys can't help it, which is a whole other, you know, <laughs> type of shame and stigma and puts all these weird questions into your head. It's like, well, <laughs> what? <laughs> they used to say you were going to grow ha- hair on your palms. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's they awful. would have or go blind from masturbating. <laughs> Can you imagine? Oh, how just just the fear, oh and then you, and if you believe those things and you hear them enough, then you can be so disconnected from your own pleasure and arousal, and and to have fear mm-hmm. mixed in with that is is really sad. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then, um, you know, going into well, well, for me, like, even going into my marriage, like, I still didn't really know, you know, very much about myself or what, what I liked or what I wanted. Turned out I think I was a lesbian all the time. I just, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't realize it, but I, I was just going through the motions of, you know, what I thought I was supposed to do, you know, get married, have a kid. But even, even the sex, like, I didn't know what to... um I didn't know what to ask for. And then when I found something that I liked, I felt, uh, I, I guess, ashamed to say the words out of my mouth. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've discovered that a lot of the women that I work with have the same issues that I had then. Mm. And I'm still learning and growing. Like I, I've um, recently gotten to know my orgasm better. And I've been... Um, Working with one of the new um, additions to my project is a wonderful um, sexologist named Nikki Morgan. Are you familiar with her work? You know, her name sounds really familiar. You've got to have her on. She is amazing. She does. um, She works with um, energy and orgasm. And it is so revolutionary for me. And I'm so excited to be sharing her work um, with our fans because this takes takes it to a whole nother level. And to say I've been doing this for 20 years sounds like, oh, my gosh, she's been doing the same thing. But no, as I learn and grow, I bring my clients along with me like, hey, I just learned this new thing. Mm. Check this out. That's so beautiful. <laughs> what, what's one thing that yeah. you, you have learned about orgasm? What's one of the epiphanies? Oh, the main thing that I've learned about orgasm is... It is not a destination. Orgasm is not a destination. Mm. I love that. I love that. It's that's so interesting. Rather than because we're we kind of have this idea in our culture that it's it is it's a finish line. Like that's where we're headed. Yeah. Yeah. But so, it it is it is infinite. Mm. Like you can have orgasm in everything that you do. Really, <laughs> like you can you can have an orgasmic life. Um, that, that's, that's kind of like what she teaches about an orgasmic life and finding the, the joy. And for, for me, it, 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 it exceeds 
a sexual pleasure even. Yeah. Um, it, it opened my mind up in a, a whole nother way. But even, even speaking sexually, like, you can find pleasure in all kinds of things. Like, you could be looking at something beautiful in nature and actually feel um, what would amount to a small orgasm. You know what I mean? Totally. Like, you yeah. Can really... You know what I mean? I do. I do. And I think it's easy to stand in the way of it. And if we open up to it, like I remember a time feeling very orgasmic over some Brussels sprouts that I ate. And <laughs> and it was so funny. It was like, and I, I mean, I even have a photo because I happen to have been with a group of friends at this event. And you can see it on my face. Like it was I, I right now I have chills over my whole body. It might just happen again. I don't know. But <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Yeah, when we give ourselves permission to, I love that, orgasmic life and to let ourselves feel that pleasure and and the deep impact of that, no pun intended. (laughs) Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And so that's that's definitely, um, you know, it came at a a very excellent, she came at a very excellent time for me in, in my life. I was going through mourning. I had lost my partner and... Um, on two of the other Punani Project um, members that I started out with both passed away. And all within like a year and a half of each other, I lost three people. And I was just like, oh, my God, what is going on? And I was feeling so low and so sad. And then I met this woman. And I'm still trying to keep the project alive, even though I'm feeling sad, right? Um, it, the whole project is very energy-driven. So if I'm not feeling 100, people can tell. They can feel that whatever um you're going through whatever you're feeling like um you spread that energy with you yeah and um yeah and i talk about that's a big part of my production is is really about uh that positive trying to live in that positive space and um for my community you know they talk about the angry black woman in the, in the media a lot. They talk about the image of the angry black woman that they're always um, using in, in media, you know, or angry, what we might consider sassy, um, sometimes is interpreted as like angry. Yeah. Um, it's not really the same thing, but that's how it's presented. And in our lives, because our, our lives are very challenging as, as black people, it's a very unique experience um, trying to trying to love and to be healthy and sexual um, after a very long, um, you know, many hundreds of years of being abused. Like yeah. it's very hard to come back from that. I mean, it's going to take a couple hundred years probably to get healthy, to get perfectly healthy, um, and to get a, a grip on, on what we've been through. So of course, a lot of that, you know, anger comes through. I talk, um, very in depth, uh, with, with my clients about speaking positive things and how we, uh, manifest our destiny with the words that come out of our mouths. I even talk about, um, you know, how the Bible says, uh, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. To me, that means that the words are God. 
when when you hear words, when somebody says words, these things resonate with you and they become your God. They become the thing that you live by. That's why poetry is very important in my project. Yeah. And conversation is very important in my project. Conversation is very important in, in our love lives. When you say horrible things to people, you manifest horrible things in your relationships. So this was already part of my platform when I met Nikki Morgan and she started talking about orgasm. So in my show, she does an actual touchless orgasm demonstration, honey. What? She takes the audience member, puts them on a table and brings them to orgasm without touching them. When I say to you, this has been one of the most powerful seasons in all these years because people can actually see in a physical way what I mean when I say you manifest your destiny with just your energy, your words, mm. your 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 power, the power that you bring with you into a room, you know? So yeah, this this sexuality that we're teaching and talking about goes, you know, far beyond, you know, your pussy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Which by the way, is that what Punami means? I'm sorry, say again? Is that what Punami means? I, I saw a clip on HBO yes. and there were people <laughs> defining it. It was so beautiful. But what is it? what does it mean to you? Punani, Punani actually is um, an Afro-Caribbean euphemism. It's a slang word for pussy. Ah, love it. Love mm-hmm. it. But, but in different cultures, it means different things. So in Jamaica, yeah, it means pussy or... Or, yeah, it pretty much means pussy. But in um, Hawaii, it means flower. Okay. Okay. It has uh-huh. a beautiful sound. Which is still sound. like the pussy like opening up like a flower, though. But like in India, it's a surname. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so, I mean, you know. So you yeah. could. Or, um, I like the word. I decided to use the word because it sounded so pretty to me. It is. I just. It when sounds very poetic to me, and it sounds much more poetic to me than pussy. I mean, I, pussy's great too, but it, to me, it sounds like what it is. I like it. Ponani, I know, right? <laughs> yeah, especially when you say it. I love your voice. It's very sultry. I love it. I love it. I saw on your uh, Twitter account, which you guys can follow her at, at Jessica Holter, uh, the hashtag Black Loves Matters. Would you speak to that importance? Um, yeah, it, it was a natural response, um, for me to, you know, when I pe- heard people going back and forth, I, I'd stay out of politics a little bit online, um, just to kind of stay in my lane. And I, I, but I feel like we can say all day, you know, Black Lives Matter. I mean, we know that. We We know that. But do we know that our love matters? Like, do we know that that is the most important thing? The most important thing you can have in this world is love. Like, money comes and goes, you know. <laughs> when you are on your deathbed, you would hope you have people around you who love you. Yes, amen. Amen. Yeah, very beautifully said. Beautifully said. And how has this work and activism and encouraging loving relationships and self-love and pussy love and punami love, how has this all impacted your own life and your sense of self? 
Um, I definitely feel that this is my purpose. Um, there, you know, going through, like I, t- I told you, I was raised in foster care and everything. I had a very trying childhood um, on the cusp of everything, in the middle of everything. I'm half black, half white. Um, I am um, very light in complexion, like my skin is very light. And I grew up in the hood. It was hard. I had to fight because I was so light. Um, I am not, I mean, I, I was married to a guy and then I was scared. Like I'm all in the middle of everything, like mm-hmm. <laughs> straddling all kinds of fences and stuff like that. Yeah. But, but I've, but I've always had this voice. I've always felt that I had a purpose. Um, to speak and to teach uh, and to be a, a muse for people's understanding of, of things. It's always been very consistent in my life. From the time I started writing, uh, I used to compete. Um, I used to do oratory competitions and I knew that that, that was my gift. So. Um, kind of as a result of everything that was going on in my life, you know, um, going through molestation and rape and all of that. And my mother died when I was 10. I just had all this heaviness. That's where the ghetto girl blues name comes from. Mm. Just the sadness. When I started working with the Punani Project, um, that's when my orgasm started, girl. That's when I found myself, um, not just personally on a sexual level, but I found my purpose and my people. Mm, that's so beautiful. I love that. And how uh, can people find out more if they want to catch a show or learn more about you? What's the best place? Oh, yeah. Please come to punanilove.com. P-U-N-A-N-Y love.com punanilove.com I've got all kinds of great stuff up there like downloadable books and music and video you could spend days just poking around my site awesome so exciting and before I let you go you're such a wealth of wisdom and beautiful experience would you share if there's somebody who's listening who is feeling you know in a dark place and they want to be more fully living more fully they want to have um, whether it's better sex or or just a more full life what's what's one bit of advice that you would offer somebody who's in a dark place I'd say get to know yourself mm, yeah that's where it all starts isn't it yeah just get to know yourself and yeah get to know yourself beautiful I love that. Be perfect advice. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm wishing you the best night. I hope I can catch a show in person sometime. Oh, yeah. I hope so, too. Thank you so much. Now for some fun with Ask Dr. Megan. This is a related issue because it also brings up a lot of shame and embarrassment, something that people don't feel comfortable talking about, and that is erectile dysfunction. I've heard from a number of folks over the past couple of months who've just had some basic questions about this condition, which is super common, by the way. Here is a chat I had with Dr. Megan, our resident sex and relationship expert on this very thing. Thank you, Dr. Megan, for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. 
Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'm always so happy to chat with you and I'm super curious to talk about erectile dysfunction because I know it's a really common issue and it seems to me people kind of know the basics, like it doesn't happen, like the boner doesn't happen, but what, what actually is kind of the definition or, or how do you define ED? Sure. Um, well, erectile dysfunction is when a man has a difficulty either obtaining or maintaining his erection. Um, and I think it's helpful for men to recognize that, you know, it's not uncommon Could be drinking too much, like, you know, exhausted, the one-offs, um, you know, one out of four men under 40 have experienced ED at some point in their life. Um, so, you know, it's important to recognize when, if it happens, it can be the one-off, but when, and if there's a consistent pattern, um, that's when it's sort of a red flag to go to see a urologist and get worked up. Okay. Gotcha. And I feel like it has a reputation for being kind of a quote unquote older guy thing. Is that from your experience, is it more common with age? Oh, a hundred percent. Age absolutely plays a role. Um, and you know, data from the Massachusetts male aging study, they sort of gave a statistic like 52% of men can have ED, but you know, at the age of 40, about 40% of men are affected. And then by, uh, by the age of 70, it's almost nearly 70% of men. So it absolutely, there's an age-related factor, and then there's also lifestyle factors like cigarette smoking, excessive bike riding with the wrong kind of seat, et cetera. And lack of sleep, right? Isn't that a big one? Well, I think lack of sleep, I mean, it's one of those things that affects us uh, globally in terms of energy levels. And, um, you know, I think the thing with erectile dysfunction from a sex therapist perspective is, you know, is it situational or is it global, right? So if a guy is still having good morning erections and no problems with masturbation, but just finds that he's having problems um, maintaining erection or obtaining erection with his partner, chances are that's, that's leading to um, a, a diagnosis of erectile dysfunction that's psychogenic, meaning there's anticipatory anxiety, performance anxiety, there's an anxiety component. But if globally and across the board, less morning erections, can't even maintain it on your own when you're relaxed with masturbation, that's when we really want to rule out if it's neurological, if it's endocrine, or if it's vascular. Um, and, the, and the thing is, most men often avoid doctors. And if when if you have ED as a symptom, A, it's a way to like your entry point in, because often it's the first symptom that's um, a sign of another medical condition, potentially heart disease, diabetes, prostate cancer. So I think it's really important that women really support their partners if this is, becomes consistent, that they definitely get it worked up and checked out. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, you know, seeing it as a, a symptom of potentially so many different things, even though it's common, you'd want to know if it's a, a health problem for sure. What uh, role, you mentioned stress, how much can kind of emotional factors, like say, you know, relationship str stress and stuff like that, do you see a lot of that in your practice or is it more kind of physiological stuff? Well, I mean, stress, you know, in a sense, is like I call it the number one killer libido more often than it is erectile dysfunction per se. Um, and the interesting thing, as I heard myself say that, is like the thing about with the, these guys who show up for me who present with erectile dysfunction, um, you know, 
it sometimes it's a hard diagnosis to think about which came first, chicken or egg, loss of libido or the erectile dysfunction, because we sort of have this expression, they want to use it before they lose it. So a guy who might not have consistent erections, he almost is like cutting off foreplay and getting fully aroused because he feels like his erection is fragile. So he's like moving very quickly um, into penetration because he doesn't want to lose it. But, you know, ultimately he's not giving himself the sensation or the arousal so that he could you know, erections, are re- it's, it's a reflex. Like when you're aroused, um, it's a reflex, unless, of course, there's an underlying medical, vascular, and neurological endocrine piece. Yeah. Yeah. No, that totally makes sense. And when you see people experiencing this, is this something that is generally causing a lot of um, relationship strife, or how, how does it potentially affect a partner? Because I imagine there's this idea of, you know, is it me kind of thing, you know, especially if it's not being addressed by a doctor? I love this question because uh, earlier today I had, uh, I think, it, two or three guys specifically who are, are you know, experiencing erectile dysfunction. The women almost universally think, is it me? Um, and so that's part of the psychoeducation, right, which is helping women be really supportive and understanding when if their partner um is sort of saying, you know what, it's not you, that you recognize it's not you. And if anything, actually, as I say that, um, it's because they still want to please you. Like, so when somebody has erectile dysfunction, there might be a medical cause, but even if so, there's usually what we call the psychological overlay. You know, it's like the tension around, is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen? Oh my God. Like those intrusive thoughts. And so, you know, it's important to recognize that whether or not it's medical or it's just psychological, um, it is really around a desire to please your partner that you, it's, we always sort of say it's like a batter up at the plate. You know, they choke. It's like, it's a performance demand. You know, it's like, you can't command yourself to be aroused any more than you can command yourself to be sleepy. And I think women just really have to, well, not have to, but like, it would be really helpful, right? If they understood A is not them. And what can I do to help my partner relax? Cause that is key. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you mentioned the performance piece. I think it's so interesting, you know, the idea of not focusing on erection. I can't remember who it was. I had a guest on who said something about, you know, enjoy the flaccid penis. And that phrase just stuck in my head because I just thought, we don't really give flaccid penises really any sort of credit whatsoever. Like, it's either hard and everything's hot or you know, I, I just thought that was unusual and interesting. Do you think that there is value in not focusing on whether or not one is hard and just saying, you know, I love being with you no matter what? Oh my gosh. I love that. I mean, that's like women loving and enjoying their bodies in any shape or size. Um, I think that men, this is true for me, especially if men are older, more in their seventies or eighties, but I would say globally, um, men, so much of their identity and self-esteem and sense of being masculine is very much tied to their erections and being rock hard, right? Like Superman, right? There's the expectation that men always want sex. And this comes from Bernie Zilbergeld, um, the expression, like the postman, he's supposed to deliver in any kind of weather. And I mm-hmm. think if you really understand male sexuality, you realize just like women, it's complex and maybe not in some ways as complex because they do have more testosterone on board and generally they have more spontaneous versus responsive desire. But I think, um, you know, it's so many men feel almost shame that if they don't want to come to their partner, if they're not rock hard and, um, 
you know, and I have so many clients where the women just sort of expect that by showing up, like literally she's there in bed, not stimulating him, not doing anything as if he's supposed to be rock hard. And I'm like, what? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's like you can take a, a Viagra or one of these uh, PDE5 inhibitors. It's like taking a pill doesn't make you erect and showing up with your partner doesn't make you erect. It's about arousal yeah. and it's mental and physical. And, you know, ladies, help your guy out here. You can't just expect. <laughs> That's really funny. Like, I just imagine just laying down. You just lay down. And you're like, okay, ready. Like, <laughs> like yeah, you know. It in. I mean, I hate to say it, <laughs> right. that crass, but yeah, yeah. it's kind of like that for some women. And they just expect it. Yeah, which, of course, we don't we don't want that either. I mean, you don't want that going in any direction. Like if, if, a if a guy just says to us, okay, go, like, like you said, it's, it's, maybe it's a double standard a bit that, that, uh, you know, that I think you said in the past, something about, you know, men should be expected to be Superman in a bedroom, which I love that concept. Yeah. Well, I think that the, again, is that cultural expectation. And yet, unfortunately that adds to that performance demand piece that men feel, um, and I don't think really reflects reality because like, you know, young kids, you're not sleeping or great, uh, stress on the job. I mean, there's so many factors in play. Um, and so I think it's so important that we always look at something contextually and understand that there are probably many things at play and don't just jump to conclusions. Absolutely. For sure. So once this becomes apparent that it's a consistent issue, what are some of the management tools or ways to address it? Sure. I mean, well, first of all, I mean, you know, again, generally you want to go to your urologist and typically ideally make the appointment first thing in the morning because one of the things they might be looking at is testosterone and looking at testosterone, um, the circadian rhythm, like it's, it should be higher in the morning. So, um, it's the best time to take the test in the morning, not that they can't repeat it. Um, and they're going to do a physical exam and all that. But I think that um, in terms of, you know, I think this is a big piece to help men and women recognize that there's always treatment options, right? Everything from the oral medications, um, the PD-5 inhibitors like Viagra, Cialis, Levitra, and then there's the vacuum constrictive devices. Um, then there's the uh, intracorporeal, which is sort of the injectable things like Caverject, and also the intrathecal, like in, inserting into the uh, urethra, like the muse, the chemical that is a prostadil. But and then and then there's always penile implants, right? So I think it's there's always an option. But the thing I think I want to say, even a, so, there's always an option, and people should know that. But even beyond that, I think for many men, because again, even if it's medical, uh, meaning organic, physiological there's a psychological component. And I think giving men the confidence that with their hands, with their mouths, with a sex toy, take the focus off your penis for a while, you know, just to relax and enjoy with confidence, right? The biggest thing I think turns people on is confidence and and a partner who desires you, knowing that you can give your partner pleasure. So well said. Thank you again, Dr. Megan. Y'all can learn more about her at greatlifegreatsex.com. And by the way, it was Lauren Brim who talked about enjoying the flaccid penis in an episode called Sex Myths and Empowerment, which released in September. I loved talking to her. I hope you'll check it out if you haven't. Speaking of episodes, next week is going to be our 150th. Definitely tune in for my chat with the phenomenal and huge-hearted comedian Sean Polofsky, plus messages from some of this year's favorite guests. 
If you've been enjoying Girl Boner Radio, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes if you haven't yet and consider leaving a simple review while you're there. For extras and a whole lot more, visit augustmclaughlin.com or girlboner.org. Thanks so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week.